Hello, hello. I am Karen Jean-François, and this is the Women in Data podcast. Join me every other week to hear data professionals discuss how data is used in various industries, get inspired, get your field of tips to help you overcome challenges on your career and feel great. Let's get straight into it. This is episode 27 of the Women in Data podcast, using data science to understand human cells mechanisms. I am joined today by Elizabeth Janeski, Principal Lecturer in Computer Science at Teesside University. In this episode, Elizabeth talks about her research that aims at curing diseases using data science. We talk about genes expression, the advantages of using data science to model human cells rather than animal testing, and touch on what working in academia means. Lastly, those who know me personally will know that I love chatting about side hustles, and Elizabeth is an artist, so make sure you check out her website in the show notes. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Karen. It's so good to have you with me today. I am very excited about this episode. It's the first episode I am doing on something that is not business related. So you work in research and I can't wait to hear all the things you have to share today. Thank you very much. I'm excited too. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're doing, I want to say, sounds very, very complicated and also (laughs) so exciting and useful. Could you start by introducing yourself and tell us what you do and what are your main responsibilities? Sure. My name's Elizabeth Yuneski, and I am a principal lecturer in computer science at Teesside University in the UK. And I do a mix of teaching and research. So I teach mainly master's students, machine learning and statistical methods. And I'm also involved in medical research where I work in an area called computational biology. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Computational biology. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into that, you studied biochemistry. I did. (laughs) How did you go from biochemistry to data science? Yeah, so my original degree was biochemistry and biotechnology, which involves working in labs with lots of chemicals. And what I discovered was that I was allergic to most of those chemicals (laughs) as I was doing my degree. So at the end, I had to think about a career change, basically, and working in something where there were no chemicals in the environment. And that's actually how I ended up going into computer science. It was free of allergens. And that was the initial the initial reason. I love to hear everybody's different ways or all the different paths into data. So yes. some people choose to go into data and you are basically forced into it because of yes, your allergies. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It was thrust upon me. I would like to talk about the computational biology, right? So what is it and what are you trying to achieve there? Right. So on a very basic level, it's mixing biochemistry knowledge with computer science and data science. And it looks at how diseases affect our bodies. 
So I'm looking for new understanding, new knowledge of how diseases affect our bodies so that we can identify new potential treatments, which something like a pharmacist or could go and run with and create a new drug with, for example. Uh, the data I use is called gene expression data, right? So gene expression data is how our DNA is converted into instructions for making the molecules in our bodies. So things like proteins, for example. So I start with that data and I convert it into metabolic data. So our metabolism is basically all the chemical reactions in the cells in our body. So you can think of that as things like converting food into energy or repairing our tissues, all those chemical reactions going on in there. And someone who has a disease can have altered gene expression levels. So it might be that those gene expression levels are increased or decreased or even switched off completely compared to, say, a healthy person's gene expression levels. So I will compare the two. I will look at the gene expression levels of someone who has a certain disease compared to someone who is healthy. And I will use a mathematical model of a human cell. So a mathematical model of all those chemical reactions in a cell to convert those gene expression levels into how they affect metabolic reactions. So the thinking behind that is, if the disease causes a certain gene expression level to be increased, then it might then have a knock-on effect of increasing one or more of our metabolic reactions. And I'm looking specifically at using things like machine learning techniques to identify those metabolic reactions that are most changed or most correlated with a particular disease. Yeah, sounds super interesting. I, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week and they were talking about protein folding. So is, is that something oh that would be a bit similar or... It's related. So we have different types. When I talked about gene expression data, there's also protein type data. And although I don't look specifically at protein folding, it is really important because after the stage of a protein being made, it then is folded and how it's folded affects its function in the body. So actually how it's folded can change what it's doing at the metabolic level and you can actually integrate that data into these kind of models so you can integrate something called proteomic data into these models so that you refine your understanding of how genes affect metabolism and that's something that actually I could incorporate in the future and something I'm looking at but it's quite complex it's quite a complicated uh, area um, a whole area of its own actually yeah yeah it all sounds very complicated to me it anyway is. so I'm just like wow this is amazing so basically what you're saying is what you're doing would come from so you're looking at the genes and how yes how they express so how the genes are expressed in the body yes and how that relates to a disease and yes I'm really curious because you you talked about the data you get where do you get that data from I personally don't collect the initial data. It's actually collected in a clinical setting or like a hospital setting, for example. And what happens is that patients will agree for their data to be used 
for research purposes. And then that data is then uploaded to online repositories. So there are these big online repositories containing gene expression data that we as researchers have free access to download and use in our research. So I don't have to go near that clinical setting that I'm allergic to. <laughs> That's all done elsewhere. And I can just go online and, and download. And sometimes that you have to agree to some ethics around this. And there are, you know, you have to, to say that you're only using that data for research purposes, etc. But yeah, so that's where I get it from. I download it from these online repositories. Yeah, I think the the ethics side of things is very interesting, right? Because you're using people's data and it can be quite sensitive. So how do you make sure that it stays ethical and everything is anonymized? Absolutely. So that data is all pre-anonymized. When I download it, there's no way for me personally to track down an individual patient from that data. They'll have a, an identifying number, say, but I can't track that back to an individual patient. But that also means that when I publish a paper, so when that data is published in a journal, for example, or freely available to people to read, there's no way for someone to go into that and then track it back to an individual. So individuals are protected in that environment and that's really really important what we don't want is for individuals data to that's really personal information yeah. um, to be leaked and be able to be used against somehow or for that person so we're very very careful to make sure everything's pre-anonymized and there's no way to link an individual's gene expression back to that person yeah and what kind of diseases are you working with Quite a few different types. Um, so originally, I, I've been very interested in diseases of aging. And in fact, the aging process itself. So what causes us to age? Why do we age? You know, and you can think of aging as, as kind of a disease in itself and, and the diseases that come with aging. So I've been looking at the metabolic changes in our bodies that occur because of changes to gene expression as we age. So you, you might think of diseases as some of them we might inherit. So we might have them at birth. There might be some kind of mutation or something um, that we have from birth. And some of them we acquire, we might catch a disease or it might be because of lifestyle. You might, might be because you're smoking or something. So like wait, that. so you're saying that lifestyle can change the way our, our genes work? They can. Oh, they wow. absolutely can, yes. So you might have heard of this term of biological aging. So we have our, our age, which is the number, how long we've been alive. But there's also this term of biological aging, which is how we compare in terms of our cells and our metabolism, how healthy we are compared to other people of the same age. Yeah. And some people biologically age better than others. So if you, for example, if you take smoking as an example, Smoking can cause your biological age to accelerate. So the cells in your body are older than someone of the equivalent age as you. So yes, aging can be affected by lifestyle and choices you make. Absolutely. <laughs> that, yeah. that's, that sounds scary. I think you should just send me a list of all the things I should not do. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I don't age too fast. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, a lot of it is very common sense. It's all that thing about eating right, 
exercising, you know, all of that can keep you healthy and aging well. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely have the exercising part. We will come back to the eating the healthy eating. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> You've got to love that pizza. It's <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so back to, to your researches. I'm just summarizing it quickly here because... Hmm. It's kind of a way for me to really understand what you're doing. Yeah. You take genes and then try to find um, how they affect diseases. And then if you were to change the way they express themselves, would that maybe prevent the disease or make mm-hmm. it easier? How does that differ from the usual medical research around? So you probably have heard of animal testing, for example. Yeah. So what we might do with animal testing is we would infect them for example, with a disease, or we might even alter their genetics and we look for those outcomes in an animal and then from there try and relate that to how it might affect a human. One of the big advantages of this approach is that it doesn't involve animal testing at all. So we eliminate animal testing and we use this mathematical, basically a computer, a computer model of the cell. So instead of having to use a live animal or even a human, <laughs> we can just use a computer model to look at that. Now, that does, at the moment, we we do have to make sure that that's a valid model. So that's something that has been done before we use it. We have to check, does this really highly accurately represent what happens in a human? So all the models that I use have been pre-validated. They have been sort of checked to make sure that they actually are an accurate representation of a human cell, but in computer form. So it differs in there's no animal testing. It differs in that because it's not an animal, it directly relates to our metabolism. So if you were to use a mouse model, for example, mouse metabolism and mouse genes aren't quite the same as humans. So there's always that issue of will how, for example, a change that you make or a disease that you use to infect that mouse present itself in the same way in a human? Well, you eliminate that because you're using a human set of metabolic reactions human model and also it's much faster much much faster so if you imagine in a computer program I can make tweaks you know in a couple of minutes and run another experiment to see what that does whereas of course in a lab you're talking about weeks months clinical testing it's a much quicker process if you want to check the outcome of changing something and see what it does and it In terms of those ethics, you aren't actually affecting an individual or an animal by doing that. You're simply affecting a a computer program and looking at data and its outcomes. Yeah, that sounds like a much more efficient and human way of doing it. Yeah, I think so. I guess also, as you said, the challenge would be to make sure that the models are accurate. Because if you have a model that's not that accurate, it might end up in a really bad position. Of course, definitely. Yeah, so... What kind of challenges do you face? Well, one of the big challenges is that there is a huge amount of correlation in the features. So when I'm doing my machine learning part, I have to be really careful to choose techniques that can deal with highly correlated data, highly correlated features. And if you think about it in our bodies, Lots of things are linked together. Lots of things affect other things. So that can confound your findings if you're not 
careful. So I, I use techniques like elastic net regression, sparse group lasso regression, because they specifically try to deal with highly correlated data and try and even though it's highly correlated, find the specific ones that are correlated with disease and get rid of that problem. And another big part is making sure that any findings you have are directly related back to a human body, an understanding of a human body. So things like, so for, I'll take, for example, a neural network, quite often seen as a black box approach because it will learn its own features. If you can't look at that and say, it said that this feature is really highly correlated with that disease and that relates to this specific thing in the body, that's a problem because it's, as you say, it's, it's really important that we understand. Yeah. We can't just kind of guess. <laughs> it, might, it might be something to do with your heart, maybe, but we, we need to know. We need to know exactly what this thing is. So interpretability of those results is really, really important because at the end of the day, we're affecting how someone's body is working potentially. So they need to be highly interpretable. Yeah, I think interpretability is uh, an issue that's very common in data science and machine learning, but I can definitely see the, the high importance there because as you gave the example of the herd, for example. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But and in terms of yourself, so you are a researcher, but you are also a lecturer. Yes. Does that create challenges for you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Because being an academic means that you are constantly balancing those two things. So if you think of a, a teaching as a set of hard deadlines, if I have a class at 10 a.m., I can't say, can I push that back to 11? It has yeah. to happen at 10. Um, so those are hard deadlines. Those can't be moved. I have to be available for that. So one of the, the, the things that you have to do is be very good at time organization because you have all of these kind of hard deadlines as well as your research deadlines. So it's very much, it's not a nine to five type job. It, it's, it's kind of an ongoing job. And I would say that you have to try and consolidate your research and your teaching so that you can feed what you're doing in your research into what you teach that kind of helps you work a bit more smart. If, if you've got teaching that is completely different from your research, then it gives you a whole load extra sort of intellectual stuff that you have to yeah. learn uh, to teach. So if you can consolidate the two, it really, really helps. Otherwise, you've got this huge cognitive load going on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm just picturing you using the wrong models because you've been teaching something different. Yeah, absolutely. And that does happen. That absolutely does happen. You go into, you've just come out of a bit of research and your mind's in that. And you go in and then, like you say, I might use some sort of biochemistry term and I will get a lot of blank, blank faces <laughs> looking at me. So, yeah. That would be me. <laughs> yeah. We're on the Women in Data podcast right now, and mm. I, I would love to know what's the women representation in, in research and at universities? In at academia? universities, probably similar to what it is in industry and in that it's very male-dominated still. Uh, it's something we've been trying to address for 
a number of years by going into schools and trying to to get girls excited about data science. But yeah, absolutely, it's anywhere between 80 to 90% male and very male dominated. So it's a challenge for us to try and get more females represented in the data science area uh, because they do have a lot to offer especially in research where we're talking about different ways of thinking and different insights the more difference and representation we can get the better really yeah Mm. (laughs) yeah I agree. And just one last thing before we close this episode. So you spoke about being very well organized Mm. to be able to balance lectures and also your research. Do you have any tips on how to manage time? Yeah. So in research, particularly, you can get a little overexcited about all the potential projects you can get involved (laughs) in. So uh, and I'm guilty of this, I have to I have to say that that means that you can end up taking on too much because you're, you're, you're self-regulating in terms of your projects. So you can say, oh yes, exciting, I'll get involved in that. Oh yes, that. And then you overwhelm yourself with too many projects at the same time. So I think you have to be very honest with yourself about what your capacity is and how many projects you can manage at once and be prepared to let some opportunities pass by. Yeah. <laughs> um, because otherwise you're just gonna get overwhelmed. Being selective about the projects you get involved in and being careful not to take on more than you know your capacity can cope with, definitely one. And back to saying consolidation, trying to consolidate your research and your teaching so that there's overlap, so that you're not having to learn a variety of different things outside of your research as well for your teaching. It really helps if it helps the students as well. If your research feeds into your teaching, you are an example for them. You're a role model for them. You can show them direct real world applications of what they're doing. So it's beneficial both ways, but it also helps with your time management. Yeah. And real work, um, real work application is very, very important. It's really important. Letting them see not just the abstract, but exactly what the potential is for what they're doing in the real world. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth. This was really, really interesting and I'm looking forward to to read more about that. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fantastic to chat to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Women in Data podcast. If you don't want to miss the next episode, make sure you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on LinkedIn. You can also register to the community for free by heading to womenindata.co.uk. We would love to hear from you, so don't be shy and drop us some feedback or a review. This will help us enhance the content and bring the guests that you want to hear from. Have a great day.